Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 219th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Coventry Edwards-Pitt. Covey is the Chief Wealth Advisory Officer at Ballantine Partners, a wealth management firm headquartered in Waltham, Massachusetts, that oversees nearly $8 billion for just 230 ultra-wealthy families. What's unique about Covey, though, is that when her firm has almost $8 billion of AUM for just 230 family households, it means that their average client is almost $35 million of investable assets. And as a result, Covey's firm has a unique focus on the issues that reach beyond just doing a great job when it comes to the technical aspects of wealth management, and instead to the problems that very large sums of money can exacerbate rather than solve, helping families navigate the decisions that can affect multiple generations and the unintended consequences those decisions often have when not carefully considered first. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Covey helps ultra-wealthy families, many of whom did not come from money and have suddenly found themselves in uncharted parenting waters after experiencing a liquidity event, pass along valuable lessons about money when their default parenting scripts about limits, like, we can't buy that because we can't afford it, suddenly don't hold sway anymore. What Covey has learned about children from ultra-wealthy families who are well-rounded and well-grounded and the common experiences they share about gaining a foundational sense of self-esteem and achievement outside of what they were born into, and why Covey and the team at Ballantine may not introduce these deeper conversations until years after the client relationship begins and once all that initial complex technical wealth management work has been done and clients are really ready for the more personal money conversations. We also talk about how Ballantine Partners organizes its own internal structure around senior client advisors who both manage client relationships as generalist experts, also lead internal knowledge management teams, and serve as a client load of just 10 to 15 ultra high net worth and ultra complex and high service clients. Why the firm settled on an annual flat fee structure at the family office level and the myriad of topics and issues that the firm covers with clients. And the matrix structure that Ballantine employs to be able to build the sort of institutional knowledge that comes from managing 230 ultra high net worth family relationships. And be certain to listen to the end, where Covey shares her own journey that eventually led her into the senior role at an ultra high net worth firm. The challenges of how trying to help families where the relationships had already been damaged was part of what pushed her to write two books about the wealthy. And why it was the pursuit of her passion around writing that helped open new doors, both for herself and for her firm in the first place. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Coventry Edwards-Pitt. Welcome, Coventry Edwards-Pitt, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm I'm really looking forward to to today's discussion with you and and talking a little bit about what it what it's like to serve very high net worth clients. You know, it's it's I feel like it's something in our advisor industry, you know, we 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 do tend to skew towards the more affluent in general relative to average US households. Some firms work a little bit more in a in a higher net worth space. But I know you you live at a firm that it just does this at a whole other level. You know, I know a lot of advisors that spend their career building up to, you know, one or 200 clients, 
you know, it's a great client base. They, you know, have a, a team member or two that supports them and they serve their one or 200 clients. You're a firm with a little over 200 clients, but it's $8 billion <laughs> under management with you do, which means if you do the math, the average client has like 30 or $40 million with the firm. And I'm, I'm sure that means even more beyond. And, and so, you know, I know just your firm to me really works with a level of high net worth client that not a lot of other advisors see and has spent decades building an offering for what it really means to do wealth management for ultra high net worth clients. And, and just, it's a realm that I don't think a lot of advisors really get to see in the same way. So I'm, I'm excited to say just talking about like, what does it really mean to to provide wealth management services to clients that start with tens of millions of dollars and and go up from there to, you know, nine-figure net worths and 10-figure net worths. Yes. Well, so happy to to talk about that and shed light on that. And I'd say that we have two groups within our firm. One is what we call our high net worth group. And Within that group, we're working with clients with three and a half million to 20. And then we have our family office group, which is working with 20 and above. But I mean, you're right, probably 90% of the asset size that we're dealing with sits in that family office group. And I, I love that, that just like so many of us advisory firms, like we, we segment our clients, we do, you know, sort of simpler investment only services for our smaller clients. We do more holistic offerings for our more affluent clients. Like I, I love that your firm does the same thing. Like it has the same segmentation, except your minimum starts at like 3 million and the dividing line is 20. Like after 20, you can really have all the services. Like you're big enough now. You can, you can utilize the full scale of what we provide. Uh, and like, I don't say that to make fun of it, just that, that, you know, you, you live in a very different kind of realm of who you serve and what you offer to them that, that that's the threshold between, you know, merely offering high net worth services and going into the next level of wealth management. Yes, it's it's so interesting, and it, it's you're exactly right that perhaps you know it's a different perspective. I think when we think about it in the three and a half to twenty realm, and we approach every client from the same holistic perspective, you know, sort of bringing both a planning and investment perspective to the client engagement, but within the three and a half to twenty realm. Primarily, the issues center around investments. You know, they're primarily looking for someone to help them with their investment portfolio. And then the issues tend to be about growing that and preparing for retirement and things like that. And then we are looking at the planning issues, obviously, to deal with risk mitigation and estate planning and stuff like that. What we start to find in the 20 and over is that all of those planning issues get very complicated or more complicated. And then you start to talk about typically multi-generational wealth and the issues that come up there. And there's just a greater degree of complexity in implementation. And I'd also say, when you ask the, the larger question of what's it like working with clients at this level of wealth, there's a whole you know, everyone's human, you know, and there's a whole human aspect to this work that I absolutely love. It's what draws me to this work, which is all about the problems that money exacerbates rather than solves, whether it's whether you can raise your children well so that they're not demotivated by this abundance of resources or whether the resources you'll be leaving to your family after you die are going to sow family discord. There's all kinds of these generally psychological issues that get very complicated 
at that level wealth. And we really specialize in helping clients think through how to handle that to mitigate mitigate the problems that can arise. Interesting. And so so it sounds like part of the, I guess the the hinging or the transition of what starts to change for you north of of 20 million is 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 I guess it is kind of the realm where you get out of there's a lot of money and we're going to live a nice lifestyle and there's going to be a good inheritance left over in all likelihood into like no we're not even just talking about the inheritance for the next generation like we're already talking about enough money to fund multiple generations down the line like multi-generational wealth is not you know my clients and their kids like it's my there's enough money now for my clients their kids their grandkids and their great-grandchildren already before we grow it for the next hundred years it's going to take to get down three or four generations and that it sounds like like that's where we really start having different conversations and a different kind of clientele need when we're not just talking about wealth that's going to get inherited we are in the very literal sense talking about multi-generational wealth and figuring out what happens with it. Yes, it's certainly the potential for multi-generational wealth. There's the overarching, larger, more fundamental question about whether that is the goal, whether that even should be the goal. And even if that isn't the goal, there's a potential to provide your children much greater sums of money at points in their life where that may or may not be beneficial for their own development of their capacity is that they need in their life. So I'd say the risk for making decisions that affect your family in ways that have unintended consequences are are much greater at that level of wealth. And so we, I sort of sometimes say that the, the benefit that we bring to clients is that we work with 250 families, you know, and we've done this for 30 years. We see the movie play out. We've seen it for all these families. And so when a client comes to us, they haven't seen the movie because they're just living their life. You know, they maybe just sold their business or something just happened. That means they need our advice. But we know where that movie likely plays out. So we can come to them and bring to them questions that they need to answer for themselves and bring them ideas about how they plan now so that they avoid the types of issues that people can run into when they don't do this kind of thinking and planning. I I really like how you framed it that the the risk of decisions that have unintended consequences is much greater at, at when you're at these levels of wealth. But that that's that's a that's a striking way for me to play, right? It's it's not necessarily that they're going to make bad money decisions per se, particularly if they're the wealth creators, they usually are at least pretty good at making a couple of good financial decisions along the way if they if they got to these dollar levels in the first place, that it's 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 not the decisions they make per se that might be bad decisions. It's the unintended consequences they don't realize because there are so many complexities that attach to their decisions when there's just literally this much money at stake and in play. Exactly. You know, and I just, I never have thought about it this way, but there's almost like an investment analogy of a correlation coefficient. And I think that the correlation between decisions that are good from a financial perspective and decisions that are good necessarily from a family perspective decreases the greater the amount of money that you have. I just think that I've seen there be a lot of potential. There's a gap between what either you know, might be a good tax mitigating decision, but then 
what decision would actually improve your child's quality of life or degree of feeling that they have self-actualized in their life or, you know, or that they have earned their own success. Those tend to become farther and farther apart the more money that is involved. I think that is the work we all love. Like, of course, we're in our business to do all the great nuts and bolts things and, you know, increase investment returns and have good complex and state planning strategies. Like you have to do all that stuff to do what we do well. And clients, of course, expect that. But you have to do all that and wrap all that in this ability to see these much deeper issues and see how those seemingly simple financial decisions have far ranging consequences across these deeper issues and sort of bring that whole perspective to the client engagement. An interesting way to frame it, I really actually like the, well, being the numbers nerd as well. Of course, I, I love that we got this down to correlation coefficients. So that's <laughs> fantastic. Like probably talking a slope of negative 0.6 here. Right. <laughs> that's it. That's the number. <laughs> like you make a, again, I think a really striking point that Right. The, the the larger the dollars get, the more you end up with, I guess, for lack of a better term, like financial decisions that get made for financial reasons, right? Where we're moving this money here, we're putting this money in that bucket, we're doing all these different things because it's an income tax strategy, it's an estate tax strategy. There's literally could be millions and tens of millions of dollars at stake in arranging financial affairs in certain ways that help manage tax impacts or legal risks. But that has a whole bunch of separate and perhaps unintended consequences for the people, the other people who may be attached to the money, inheriting the money, having access to the money, having expectations around the money. And the more that's at stake, the more those can diverge from each other of what is financial or tax optimal and what was necessarily a thing that you wanted to do just from a pure family values perspective. Exactly. And I'd say another dynamic that happens, and I think that all of us in our industry, working with clients at this level, need to be cognizant of and sort of be careful of is that the industry is essentially organized around helping the parent generation exercise their wishes. You know, so most wealthy clients come to an advisor like us when they have built a pool of assets. And now they're at that stage in life thinking, what do I do with this money? You know, And what most people at that stage in life, which tends to be sort of like, you know, middle age to empty nester, what they most want to do is help their kids. Like who do they love more than their children, essentially, even philanthropically minded people. It's hard to beat, you know, helping my kid. And so generally you add on to that, the, the, all the good tax reasons to transfer wealth into trusts and multiple generational trusts. There's basically this huge sort of industry push to push money down to these kids. And very few people are talking to that next generation about what do they actually want? Do they want to be living with a trust for their whole life? Do they want to be dealing with a trustee when they're 50? All of these types of questions. And I think that that's something that we try really hard to bring the perspective of not just what the parents wish for and want and what they think will help their kids. But in reality, what really will help those kids. Um, and sometimes those are not the same thing. And again, as you had said, like when the dollar amounts get bigger, like there's really a lot at stake, right? You, you know, when, when you're talking about millions or even tens of millions going down in future generations, I guess like for, for lack of a better term, like you could really screw someone up by, <laughs> By, by leaving that much money and either structuring it wrong because they've got too much freedom or too little freedom or whatever, 
incorrect or unhealthy incentives you unwittingly create around it. Not that we can't create some harm with smaller dollar amounts that are left with poor incentives, but just as you said, like the stakes get a lot bigger when the when you add a couple of zeros to the net worth. Right. And I think the other thing that certainly I've learned in my career, and I think as a firm we've seen and what we try to bring to our families is that I think what's often talked about in this world is, okay, there's a lot of money and it's going to be passed down. So we need to talk about how to communicate about the money. And it's all about the money and communicating about this tax strategy or the estate structure, all that. What we've seen is that the types of communicating that needs to happen to actually prepare kids for a life where they will inherit money has to start so much earlier. And it actually doesn't have to do with money. It has to do with teaching a child sound financial and just sort of life values like, gee, do I understand how to live, abide within a limit that has been set? Have I had a sense of work ethic inculcated in me? Do I know how to stick with a job that I might not love on any given day? You know, do I understand that just because I might have some money at my disposal doesn't necessarily mean I, sh- I need to spend it or I need to keep up with my friend who's spending it? So there's these really kind of critical life, almost like adulting values that what we've, our philosophy has come to really embrace helping our clients who are parents transmit those values to their kids like as early as possible because it's going to be the absorption of those values that will prepare that kid to actually be able to inherit the money that they'll inherit. Yeah, I, I I still remember a conversation I'd had with a, a very affluent client who was struggling that you know they had had their wealth transition events and suddenly there was a a very high net worth and they had young kids and you know they 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 were trying to instill you know just responsibility like fiscal responsibility in them basically the way that that they had learned growing up which is like there's certain things that you want to buy that you you can't afford so you 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 know your parents tell you well we we, we just can't afford that and that was how they learned their particular lifestyle which had actually been fairly frugal throughout their adult lives until suddenly there was a lot of money out there and 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 I remember they they had still said like the first time that they had this this awkward realization where the kids want like you know one of the kids wanted to get something and just the instinctive response was like well no we we can't afford that we're not we're not going to buy that and it was like oh oh no we really can like we could buy a thousand of them like we <laughs> we have an eight figure net worth like the, this is so not a money issue anymore. And and they realized like just the fundamental mechanism that they had had that they had grown up with about teaching some level of fiscal responsibility, which is there are things that you just can't buy because it's not within your means. Like that that filter broke for them. They were like, we can't say that to our kids anymore. And like, well, I don't know what to actually say when we want to say no because like I always grew up with there's just some things that you can't afford because you have to live within your means. But they're like. Living within our means means like our kids spend a million dollars a year and we don't want to teach them to do that. But like live within your means doesn't work anymore. Like we need a new script. Like what do we say to our kids now? Which, you know, which starts leading to, well, you really didn't want to, you don't really don't want them to spend because there's something about the value of what that spending means that you don't think was appropriate. Like you, you got to figure out how to articulate that part because, because your old script, like live within your means, don't, don't spend wastefully, like that doesn't work when you've got that much money. 
Yes, you hit it on the head. That is exactly it. The the old sort of default, well, we can't afford it. That filter breaks. And when the filter breaks, it's exactly what you're saying. People don't have the script. You know, so much of parenting is the default script that's in your head as a result probably of your own upbringing. And so when that filter breaks and the script is useless, people feel very unmoored. And a big part of what we try to help clients with is to write a different script and to understand that it's going to feel actually a little artificial, that actually your kid does need to learn those same lessons that you did. It's just that you learn them by default. Like that was, <laughs> that just happened. And now you need to essentially create opportunities to teach your kid those same lessons, even though you don't need to. Like when I'm talking about my first book that I wrote, there's a lot of stories in there about ways in which parents intentionally recreated a situation where the kid would have to earn back the money to pay back the parents or whatever. Like, of course, the parents didn't need the kid to pay them back, you know, but they needed. This was not like a tax family optimization. We're going to take intrafamily loans because, you know, there's some uh, wealth shifting within the family. No, this was like a daughter who had a credit card and spent money on the credit card. And, you know, dad and mom got the bill. We're like, "Uh, okay, (laughs) these were not approved charges and had to create a mechanism for her to like with her own sweat equity, earn the money to pay that back, even though it was kind of like a rounding error for them. Like they didn't need her to do that. And so a lot of this is creating the opportunity for a child to learn the lesson they would have learned in a family where with, if they had had less abundant resources, they would have learned these lessons by default. And and this to me that there is something interesting that comes from that and reflecting that, you know, you, you, right. Like you have to figure out how to create for lack of a better word, like artificial systems and constructs to, to reinvent some of the scenarios that other people of less wealth learn naturally through just kind of how the, how the world may operate that they need help to create the artificial frameworks to instill the same lessons, which, which to me then starts to drill home. Like this is why it helps to actually have this level of expertise and specialization in these kinds of families. Cause when you've worked with a few hundred families that have had to figure out how to create these, you actually have some lessons of, well, here are some things we've actually seen that have worked with other people who are trying to show, you know, show a child why a $10,000 credit card bill is irresponsible, even though we're worth $80 million and no one's actually going to notice the $10,000 bill. Exactly. And you need two things. You need the artificial, you need help with the practical execution. Like what are the constructs? What are the things? What are the scripts you can say? And then I find clients really need help with the psychology of it because it's like, look, you know, I've earned this money. I have these extra resources. Like, is it so bad if I, you know, put my child on the private plane? Like how, how, how people have a lot of trouble kind of um, reconciling their own totally understandable wish and desire to enjoy the fruits of their labor with their also equally compelling, you know, need as a parent to feel like they are educating their child in the whole host of socioeconomic outcomes in life, you know? And so, and sort of there's like a guilt there, like, well, I, I would like, especially I find, you know, there's a fascinating statistic that um, I learned from Jim Grubman that actually in the U.S., 80% of wealth that's created on a rolling basis is newly created wealth. So actually most of many of our, you know, many of our clients and 
I know a lot of the wealthy people out there came from much less themselves in their own upbringing. So they, which just means it's very, very likely you have, you have no idea what the artificial constructs are to teach and no one has ever modeled them for you because you actually probably grew up with the, the real version of the constructs for lack of a better word. Exactly. And then you layer onto that. Sometimes people have come from a real sort of scarcity environment. Like they remember being really poor. They remember things they felt deprived of when they were young. And so they have this like completely deep down desire to save their own children from that sense of deprivation. And I think that can be an incredibly powerful and understandable emotional urge, but can also be really damaging because because the uh, you can sort of follow that through to the conclusion. You basically want to give the child everything, which does have the effect of depriving the child of the ability. So much of this I find with what we see works with raising these kids is creating outcomes. I, I sometimes say to my clients, and I say this to myself, try to, uh, and I, I hope I don't come across as the perfect parent because literally everything I've learned from these people I interviewed and I wrote the book about, I try to teach myself as a parent. And it's not easy because it's always easier to say yes than no. You know, it's always easier to sort of fix the problem than to try to provide your child with a way to fix the problem on their own. But the question I tend to provide my clients as the sort of guidepost is in every situation, ask yourself, what role do I need to play in this situation so that the outcome, whatever it is, whether it's a success outcome or a failure outcome, my child will feel like they earn that outcome on their own. And basically, the answer is nothing. In most in most situations, the answer is do nothing. And that is so hard. Um, I think it's hard for parents in general, but it's really hard when you have a lot of extra financial resources and it would be so easy to provide help. And and I think it's worth noting that, uh, as you mentioned, like you have a book on this. It's called Raised Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, right, of, of taking these stories and experiences with with clients and and putting those stories in a book for others to read. So uh, this is episode two hundred nineteen. So if you go to kitsis dot com slash two one nine, we'll uh we'll we'll have a link out for for Covey's book. If this is a you know a thing that fascinates you, or you want to check out a little bit more, uh, sort of these dynamics of what it's like having wealth advice conversations with families, where you know there's a whole realm of creating artificial limits to teach values that otherwise don't get taught because the limits actually don't exist when they've got that much money, or at least the limits are a different order of magnitude where the usual lessons break down. Exactly. You got it. And and I also think another really powerful thing is to just allow a child to operate at all ages at the highest level of their capacity. So Jeff Savlov, who's you know an advisor in our field, has this great term he calls the golden sippy cup rule, which I love, which is like, as soon as your child is old enough to kind of like teeter-totter over to the dishwasher and put their own sippy cup in the dishwasher, let them do that. You know, that provides them such a sense of accomplishment. And if you sort of follow that analogy through all of life and all of childhood, I think it's incredibly apt. Like, but that the stakes are so much higher when the failure potential grows, when you're now talking about whether a kid gets into the school you want them to get into, or they get the job that you hope they'll get, and all of these things. And when you have resources to accomplish all those outcomes, it gets really hard for parents to just say, I'm not going to help. And what I help people think about in that situation is, 
I share the stories that I heard from the book, which is the level of pride and self sort of self-satisfaction from the kids who were given the opportunity to do those things on their own, like fail or succeed. They, they felt like they did those things. And I say, so like, if you're the parent trying to help, remember the pride in this person's voice that I interviewed and know that your effort to help will mean that that pride will not be there in your child's voice because they will not end up feeling like this is something they did for themselves. But it's it takes literally like constant reminders for all of us because it's not intuitive. It's not what you want to do as a parent. And just curious, like how did you end out at a point of, you know, writing writing a book on this? I mean, was it just literally like I'm having this conversation so many times with clients. I'm just going to write all this down and give it to them so they can read it for themselves. That's such a great question. No, it's, well, there's a long story, but I'll, I'll say a couple things. You know, I'm always curious about what is conventional wisdom and whether it's actually borne out by what I'm seeing. And so I would say I was noticing, so so a couple things. First of all, like so grateful to Roy Ballantyne, the founder of our firm, for being a curious person and for from his own experience in life, having come from a family business, which was the impetus for starting our firm, he knew from the get-go and felt very deep down that our work was about much more than money. It's about the family relationships. It's about children's capacities, things like that. So he was curious and was willing to go there with our clients. So I happened to join the firm just as I think Roy was starting to ask questions and sort of look around like, okay, we've done all this amazing planning with our our you know the parent generation and like yay you know done all these amazing tax strategies and made them great investment returns how are the kids you know how how is this going for their kids and starting to sort of ask that deeper question like because what you start to notice when you're working with families like this you know you can have all the money in the world and you can have the best tax advice and everything but if there's something going on with your child you are not a happy person and so if you're in that room as the advisor it becomes, it starts to become very apparent that the work that we actually really need to do is to help these families have not only good relationships with their children, but feel like their wealth has not impacted their children's life in a negative way. I think that that is sort of what all of our clients are hoping to avoid, whether they understand that when they first hire an advisor like us or not. So Roy was sort of primed to be asking these questions. And then that's exactly the kind of work I'm most drawn to. So I'm starting to ask these questions in my client relationships. And I started to just see some kind of unusual things in the industry. Like the industry talks a lot about how children need to be prepared to be good stewards of wealth, you know, and they need to be educated about the trust that they will be beneficiaries of it. It's not that I disagree with those things, but what I felt was missing from that, when I actually looked around at the clients' children I saw in my practice who were the kinds of kids we'd all want to have, like grounded, self-motivated, content in life, they had had a different message. (laughs) The message they had received was more like, you're going to be your own person. You should go out and figure out how to feel a sense of accomplishment in your own life. And they had been given capacities to do that. Like they could set limits for themselves and they could stick with the job. And and so I just started to be curious about how these kids actually became those kids and just wanting to interview them and, and ask them 
what did you hear from your parents? And then be able to reconcile what I was hearing with kind of what was talked about as industry best practice. And it turned out to be a lot of different things that I heard that was not exactly what we at that point in the industry had been talking a lot about. Because it was because it was less about be good stewards of wealth and was much more around kids' personal learning journey, self-discovery journey, values finding kind of journey. Yeah, well, so I'll give you a really crystal clear example. You know, after I I saw these people as I just described the sort of profile, sort of contented, grounded, motivated, what I found when I interviewed with them was that they all shared four characteristics in common. So I dedicate a chapter in the book to talking about those characteristics. But the first characteristic is one that I think is actually pretty controversial in our industry, which is that all these people I interviewed said that a critical thing for them in their life was that they were all given a chance, some portion of time in their life. It didn't even have to be that long. Like for one person, it was only a year where they were earning their own way. They were living off of money that they themselves had earned rather than any family money. And they all talked about some moment in their life like that being absolutely foundational for their sense of self-esteem and like such a critical gift that their families gave them, that they gave them the ability to spend some time doing that. And what was really critical was they said, because I've spent, they all said some version of, because I've had that experience for some some time in my life, I know that if my family money went, you know, disappeared tomorrow, I would be okay. So it was really less about, yeah, I can go out and get a job and support myself. But it was, yes, it was that, but it was even deeper than that. It was this sense of confidence, this confidence in their own ability to support themselves separate and apart from what they had inherited or would inherit that was so critical. It's like actually really foundational for a sense of self and identity. And, you know, that was such a powerful thing for me to learn through these interviews. And it's actually shaped, you know, completely the advice I give to clients, but also I've started to think like if there's one thing that I can leave my clients with and that we can all try to do as parents, I think, you know, if you're to ask most parents, what do you want for your child? Most parents, you know, your sort of knee jerk response is I want my child to be happy. But then when you think about yourself as a person going through the world and what you would most want for your adult self, I think most people want to feel a sense of capability, like that they will be able to handle whatever life throws at them, which, you know, things get thrown at you, you know? And so if you actually think about it that way, how as a parent do I help my child develop a sense of capability, which will probably end up leading to happiness? That leads to very different decisions. And it's through that lens, like these kids so valued the sense of capability that they were able to extract from that year. And it fueled all these other things in their life. Like, okay, I did that so I can do this. And so basically what I find when there's a lot of money in a family, parents like almost literally need to sit on their hands to keep from providing resources that strip a child of that ability to have experiences that fuel that own sense of capability for their own life. Very cool. So, so then what were some of the other areas? So like one, one big one was just the, the opportunity to have earned their own way for some period of time. Yes. And two was that, you know, I'll say a common situation in our world is you'll sort of be asked by a parent, okay, I've got this sort of like 28 year old child and they have 
kind of like cycled through three or four career attempts, or maybe they've been in a couple of different graduate school programs, but they haven't yet really developed any traction in a career. So what was really interesting about these people I interviewed is that all of them, as the second shared characteristic, did not have that profile. They all had the ability, somehow they had this ability to have stuck with some career vocation of their own choosing long enough to essentially do what, you know, a lot of people do in their career, which is like figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you're passionate about, achieve some success, have some failure. But basically you have traction and that traction allows you to progress. Like kids from a non-affluent family get a message like, hey, if they were lucky enough to go to college or have anyone pay for college, they usually get this pretty clear message like out of college. Okay, you're on your own. You need to support yourself. When there's extra money in a family, that message turns into a different message, which is often something like, there's family resources here. Your job is to figure out what you're passionate about and our resources will help support that passion or invest in that passion or whatever it is. And so they're left really sort of confused about, do I need to support myself? What does that mean exactly? And what's challenging is it's sort of exactly backwards. Like what that means is that kids end up showing up at you know, job one and expecting passion to like alight on them. And, and especially what that also means is like the first day that, you know, the boss isn't nice or the job isn't fulfilling or whatever, they think this wasn't a great day. This must not be what I'm passionate about. And especially if there is then some extra money, say, in a trust distribution or a bank account that provides them some economic safety net for some period of time and means that the job isn't even economically necessary, kids leave. And I see that that creates this cycle of starting, stopping, starting, stopping. And so how the parents who raised the kids I interviewed avoided that cycle is they gave their kids two important messages. The first one was, yes, you know, find work you love, find work you're passionate about. It won't feel like work if you love it. We love our work, blah, blah, blah. But it was always paired with the second message, which was that might take a while and no job is too small and give every job your best effort and, you know, learn from every job. And so essentially it was almost like a form of inoculation when these kids showed up and day one on the job wasn't great. They thought, well, you know, okay, it's not great, but let me stick around and let me see what I learned. And so they were able to have the endurance essentially to stick with something and thereby discover their passion, which typically is discovered once you stick with things and learn about things. And so it was, it was just fascinating how parents achieved that outcome. Interesting. And so then what was the what was the next one that you'd found? Yes. Okay. So if you have one and two going on, so say you're like a young person out in the world, you've spent some time in your life sort of supporting yourself and you feel like you have the capacity to earn your own way. And now you have two, which is that you have some traction in a career of your own choosing. You end up with three, which is essentially a sense of self-identity, a foundational sense of self-esteem that is based largely in your own mind. And really, this is all that matters. It's what you perceive in your own mind. It's based largely on your own achievements and choices in your life, more than what you were born to and what you inherited. You understand there were advantages there, but you also feel like you actually contributed meaningfully to the success in your life through your own efforts. There's like a sense of skin in the game. And that 
that sort of foundational self-identity is so critical for the sense of confidence that we've been talking about. And the fourth one is probably the best, the best thing and the most important thing and the most valuable gift that parents can give their kid, which is all of these people could point to some time in their life where they had been required to get themselves out of a problem of their own making without help. From, from their parents or money or whatever. So I, I sort of call it like earned resilience. But again, you can see the same theme because they had had some time like that where they had gotten out of a problem. It gave them a sense of confidence that they could do it again. And they were then able to take that sense of confidence into other endeavors in their life. I interviewed one dad about his daughter's quest to get a job, and it was like a seventh-month quest, and it was ultimately successful. And I had interviewed her. She was only 25, and she was like literally like glowing with pride, and this had been two years ago, and she was talking all about how hard it was, but she did it. And he was like, you have to hear my story, which is like, he, he's like, she first came to me and asked if I could help, but I didn't know anybody, so I couldn't help. And then he said it was literally torture sitting there watching her kind of like flail for months. And I really didn't know if she was going to get a job. And what was really interesting to me as the interviewer is two years on now from this experience, she didn't bring that up to me that she asked for help. Not because I don't think she wanted me to know. I think it's honestly because in her emotional memory of this experience, that like doesn't even hit the radar. I think what she remembers from this is she did it. Like it was she really, remembers really, that she did it, not that exactly. she may have at one point tried to get dad to help. And then after dad said, no, she ended out doing it. Like the point is she did it. She's like, I did it. It was so hard. I did it. And there was even pride to like, you know, I'm not a hundred percent financially independent yet, but like a, I'm, I'm more financially independent than a lot of my friends. Like just so much pride. Whereas dad, all dad remembers was that was torture. Like two years ago was torture. It's still torture. It was torture. And I, and I share that story because I think it's actually so important for parents to understand that their their emotional experience and their child's emotional experience are like two trains running on totally separate tracks. And I think so many times parents want to just rush in there and get in there because they think that this torture that they're experiencing, which by the way, you know, I'm sure it wasn't fun for her at the time. I'm sure she was talking about how hard it was at the time, but they see only that and they think that that will be what it will be forever. And they don't see the pride that she developed later, you know, and how sad would it have been if he had jumped in? Because then she wouldn't have had that experience that she was so proud of. So, but it really takes reminding because it's like, it's just painful. It's just painful for parents. <laughs> so, so that's just the sad truth. In fact, sometimes I have to say to my, my clients, like, you have to just kind of like recast because it's impossible to say no to your kid. I think it's actually better to recast what you are feeling as a no, which is no, I will not get the toy or no, I will not help you get the job or whatever is the no as a, I am actually not saying no. I am saying yes to you developing these capacities for yourself because I have derived a lot of satisfaction in my own life from having these skills and capacities. And I want that same satisfaction for you. And unfortunately, that requires me to say no at this time. <laughs> and, and I even say to people like, tell your kids that like, you don't need to be too, you know, <laughs> secretive about this. Like I say, like, just say that, like, I want this for you. I love you. I want you to have these feelings of satisfaction for yourself. And that means, unfortunately, I really can't help you right now. So Anyway, it's easier said than done. That is for sure, though. I know it myself. It's easier said than done. So so now help us, help us understand and fit this into the business context of just how does the business work of 
of what you do? Like just, I guess, walk us through you. I'm a, I'm a prospective new client. I have $42 million. I'm, I'm hiring your firm to, to work with because I'm anxious about these wealth management, uh, family legacy issues. So, you know, Covey, I've signed up with your firm. We're going to get started. Like, what happens? What do you what do you do? <laughs> yes, what do we do? So, okay, so you're one of these people and you sign up with us and you are assigned a team of people with essentially probably one primary senior client advisor who is going to be your person who will hold your hand through these issues. And we view our role. So we charge one fee, you know, one annual fee, probably about 60% of our clients are paying us a flat annual fee and the rest are paying us some sort of asset-based fee, but it has to do more with the complexity of their situation than, you know, are we quote managing the money or not? And we view it as our job to bring our expertise across all these issues to that client for that one fee. So typically what happens is there's certain issues that are top of mind for any new client. Like, okay, I just sold my business. I've got this pile of money. I need it to be invested. I've got this trust that my lawyer said, said I should do. That needs to be funded, all this stuff. And so, you know, we do a diagnostic. We look at all that stuff. We see all the immediate issues that need to be handled and we handle all of that. What we find is that usually the sort of first one to three years of a client engagement are very much immersed in these nuts and bolts issues. You know, get the money invested, get the reporting done, figure out where all the assets are, get the nice balance sheet, all this stuff to sort of make their life run much more efficiently from a financial perspective and to make sure that there aren't any unaddressed risks or, you know, any opportunities that are Sometimes we find like significant tax saving opportunities or significant mistakes that have been undisclosed, things like this. So we deal with all that. And what I find is that once we have handled all that and it starts to be freed up out of our clients' minds, they are then better able to contemplate and engage with some of these deeper questions. And all of our senior client advisors are trained in all of the stuff we've just been talking about. So like, you know, we don't we don't necessarily lead with this in meeting one, two, three, because clients sometimes can't hear it when they're worried about, you know, their investments not being invested or things like that. But we always have it top of our mind. So I'll give you a good example. Like, you know, if a question comes up, a seemingly simple question about should we make an annual exclusion gift? Well, of course, you know, it would be good for tax minimization, blah, blah, blah. We are always thinking about, okay, what about these deeper issues? So for us, what might seem like a simple tax decision is actually a much deeper conversation about, okay, so where's that gift going to go? Is it going to go into an account that your child's going to have access to? How are you feeling about your child's life right now? How are you feeling about their work ethic, their job? All these things. So we view it as our role for our one fee to bring those questions up in a, in a client discussion. So, you know, we'll be meeting with our clients quarterly, probably talking to them much more frequent, frequently than that. And, you know, we'll go through all the topics, investments, estate, philanthropy, all those things. But throughout all of that, we are thinking of these deeper, I guess, human family issues and bringing up questions around that when we know it's going to be important. So I'm I'm struck by this that you know for for all of what you're for all of what you're discussing about this this framework it it was still we almost kind of went over it quick like 
oh, but it, we do spend the first like one, two, three years just getting the money invested and putting everything together. You're just getting them their foundation. And I, I mean, that's a, that's a long period of time in and of itself. Like just, I'm, I'm struck by that, that point that like, yes, this is what we're going through with our clients in the long term, but like it still might take a few years before we get to this part. Cause there is just a lot of other, you know, I was going to say nuts and bolts, whatever the, whatever the nuts and bolts equivalent is when you have $42 million that you're trying to allocate and deploy because, you know, you used to have, have all of it tied up in a business. Now you have liquidity events and suddenly you have to figure out what to do with these dollars. Right. And I mean, we're ready to go there immediately. You know, if someone comes in and says, I'm here to talk about my kids, like, yes, we are there. Like, awesome. Um, but, but what we find is like, you know, a, a great example is you'll have a business founder who has just sold their business. Like they've sold their baby. You know, they put 40 years into this thing. It's all they've known. They don't know anything about the investment world. They used to have a complete sense of control. They you know, owned the business, they were in charge every single day. And now they feel essentially a great degree of fear about what's going to happen to their what used to be a business and is now money. So, you know, for that person, there's a lot of investment education, there's a lot of explaining how this is going to work. There's also typically a lot of estate planning flurry of estate planning that has just happened with gifting and all this stuff. And so we find that just even with like a client's attention span, they're going to be engaged on those issues at that time. But what we know, back to the movie analogy, we know where that movie goes is that you now have gone from being a business-owning person to a wealth-owning family and that all the issues that are going to arise, like should we buy a family vacation compound and how will we structure that? Should we set up a multi-generational trust and how will we talk about that with our children? We know all those issues are going to come up, but they're not ready yet to engage in those. So we'll sort of, we kind of plan our meeting agendas thoughtfully so that we deal with the things that must be done and then try to kind of like introduce things that we know clients don't have on their mind, but need to, <laughs> need to be starting to think about when they you know, to the level that they can hear it and be able to act on it at that time. I'm I'm struck by this because I, yeah, like regardless of the the wealth dollar amount, I I feel like there's a piece of this that so many of us do as advisors in a well in a way that frankly sounds now a little bit wrong relative to to what you're saying here. Like you know you your kind of by analogy, like your version of, I'll call it comprehensive wealth management involves not just we're going to invest the dollars, but we're going to get into all these issues around your holistic life and all the things that are going on, which, you know, might be tax planning and estate planning and these kinds of family values issues and legacy issues and all the stuff that goes on there, which to me is not unlike, you know, even the the rest of us maybe working with mere mere millionaires or hundred thousandaires who have our version of, I want to do this comprehensive financial plan with you, and we're going to look at your insurance and your estate and your retirement and your tax, and and we want to cover all the different issues. And you know, we tend to lead with the comprehensive plan, right? That's what a lot of us tend to do, right? We differentiate because my financial planning is more comprehensive than anybody else's financial planning, and that's why you should work with me. And 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 we you know we lead with the financial plan because we say, hey, that's our value. It's not just the investment portfolio. But I think you make an interesting point that kind of starting with the first things first, that 
if the client's issue is, you know, I got dollars and they need to land somewhere and I want to make sure they're deployed, like it's okay to start there. And if it takes a while to do that, it's okay to be there for a while before you get to the other stuff that you want to get to, even if that's ultimately the thing that you're saying is the value in the long run and really is the value in the long run, that it's okay if you just do the first things first, which is whatever is really actually on the client's client's mind that they want to solve, which might not be our comprehensive financial plan or in your context, the the comprehensive multi-generational wealth legacy discussion or however you frame it, which is probably more eloquent than that. Well, yes. And I'd say also, I think in our world, a lot of what we think about too is what what are our clients hiring us to do for them and what do we need them to be engaged in to do in partnership with us? So we sort of try to take on as much as we can do for them that they don't need to be involved with. So like as an example, take that business founder, like we know they need probably a comprehensive property and casualty insurance review. You know, so we're going to work with the insurance brokers to do that. We're going to ask them the you know the five questions that need to be asked to make sure that's done. But we're going to kind of handle that. And and same with life insurance. You sort of go down the list of all the things we know need to be done. But they don't care that much about them, and they don't need to be that you know involved in it. And we're going to use the time with them to focus their attention on the issues that are going to be most critical for them and for their satisfaction that their situation is being handled. Like, so in this example, like for a client like that, who's just sold a business, probably, you know, half of the meeting is going to be just talking about how the stock market works and, you know, what it means when it (laughs) goes down 30% and like why that's not necessarily a complete, you know, disaster. Particularly (laughs) if you built your wealth in a, in a privately held business where for better or worse, your your business's value is not marked to market at the close every day. So even though your wealth might have technically been quite volatile in your in your business, like you never saw it. Exactly. And we've had that exact discussion with people that like, right, you were in a business that also probably had a valuation, you know, volatility, but you just it was not in your phase pull upable on fidelity every single day. And so I think that Part of the, you know, we would probably devote a lot of time in our actual client meeting time in helping people make that psychological transition from the control they felt as a business owner to now an investor, which is basically they feel no control, <laughs> even though we try to help them feel a lot of control. You've got a strategy, you know, you've got multi-generational horizon, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is it can be very frightening. And let's talk about that. And that just takes time to get over. I mean, as you know, like that just takes time. It takes the market going down 15% and you surviving that and all this stuff and tax loss harvesting. And like, it just takes time to learn that. And so, you know, we find that when people then have learned that, okay, like, okay, I'm feeling better about this pile of money now. Like, I'm okay. I've transitioned to, I'm a wealth owner, not a business owner. Okay, let's start talking about this wealth. Like now I don't feel like it's going to disappear overnight. Now I can actually engage in this deeper conversation about what is this for? <laughs> like, hey, maybe I should think more about philanthropy or for my kids or whatever. So it's, I guess it's a stage. It's a learning stage. And and I guess I just want to say that we view our role to sort of be on top of all the things, whether or not the client is even that aware that we're, that we're on top of all the things. And so when you've got this layering of, of offerings, right, you're, you're under 20 million versus over 20 million is there a difference in services? Is there a difference in what they get? Is it like a 
a difference in training because you know you you only get the advisors trained in the family legacy conversations if you're over 20 million otherwise you get different advisors who haven't been trained in that like what what's the functional difference in what the under 20 million clients get and what the over 20 million clients get sure so it's partially so same approach same sort of holistic approach that looks at the whole person and the whole financial planning situation one point of distinction is that at the high net worth level, the three and a half to 20, we'll, so say we think to ourselves, oh, you know, they might really, they might benefit in the situation from having an irrevocable life insurance trust. We would make that recommendation. We'd recommend the attorney or the insurance person, but we'd sort of stop there. At the family office level, we're going to be essentially having discussions to help talk about what that trust should look like. We're going to be modeling all that. We're going to be making sure that the trust is all of the things that have to be done after the trust is formed to make sure it's in good standing or done. Like all of that implementation stuff, which tends to be much more complicated at that level anyway, we're handling. So that's one point of distinction. The other point of distinction is that the asset, even though we're actually looking at all the same investment, same investment philosophy and implementation, but just you know, the way it works in terms of asset size, the actual underlying implementation may differ slightly. So like at the higher level, their clients might be interested and willing to put more in private investments, or they may be able to access different private investments that have higher minimum investment requirements. That said, we've actually, because of our aggregate, like you said, seven and a half billion that we're advising on, we have been able to negotiate access points down so that even our high net worth clients are able to access some things as a result of our aggregate asset volume that we are bringing to managers. So, so I think, and I would say there's sometimes a specialty and just, it's not necessarily different training, but I'd say there's a different focus area. Like for clients in the high net worth group, the whole issue about, you know, when to take social security or how to structure their retirement plan. Those are, you know, so those are significant decisions as a percentage of their overall income stream, essentially, or their asset pool. It's not that those are irrelevant decisions on the other end. It's just that they tend to sort of pale in comparison sometimes to the the rest of the picture. So I would say that we we split up the world, the knowledge world that we need to understand in our firm by teams. We have knowledge management teams. And for years now, our sort of retirement experts have come from our high net worth group because they're in the middle of those issues all the time. And they're then they have to be really sort of deeply well versed in them because they're seeing a whole host of retirement, you know, plans and it really matters uh, in terms of a percentage of the person's total investment base. So help me understand, I just you mentioned something interesting there. What are what are knowledge management teams? Yes. As you as you can see, like you know, there's a lot that we're covering. So we'll have clients come in with highly complex stock options, or we'll have clients who have incredibly complex estate stuff. And then there's all the philanthropy stuff. And then there's all this family legacy stuff we've been talking about. So there's maybe, you know, 15 different areas that we feel like we really need to be expert in. And the way that we organize our firm, as I mentioned, we have senior client advisor in charge of each client relationship. And they're the ones bringing and organizing the internal team, which is, you know, a couple people on the investment side, two or three people on the planning side, they're sort of pulling that all together. But they are charged with being the 
generalist expert. <laughs> They're supposed to know this stuff. Different than some organizations where there's more sort of like a salesperson in the relationship role, and then they like bring in the actual expert. Our senior client advisors are really supposed to know all the stuff that they need to know and engagement. That said, there are like total rabbit holes you could go down in our business. So the way we make sure we're on top of the rabbit holes is we have these knowledge management teams. So I happen to be like a little side, you know, part of my role is I and two other wonderful colleagues of mine are on our people and purpose knowledge management team, which is everything we've just been talking about. It's like educating children, it's end of life legacy planning, it's all of this stuff. So our team, as all of the teams are tasked within our little area, we are tasked with doing several things. We're supposed to know who are the external vendors or you know advisors that are really awesome in that space. So like in our world, it's people who help record, re, um, do memoirs or death doulas or people who help advise kids getting out of college about getting jobs. So like there's all these other resources we could bring into a client engagement. So we need to know who those people are. And we're also supposed to provide training to the rest of the firm on specialty areas. So like our little team does a training every January on goal setting. And we talk about all the different tools in our space that help clients with goal setting, like, you know, awesome cards with pictures on them from 2164 or like George Kinder's evoke process or like there's all kinds of tools. But so our job is to really be familiar with those tools and then to condense the training so that we can equip all of our advisors with what they need to know. And that's the case for every team. So we have an estate team, a risk team, a philanthropy team, and they go on and on and on. But that's how we help ourselves know what we need to know. Interesting. Uh, and and just because I'm just wondering, you, like, you all have other day jobs too, like just <laughs> clients and other things to deal with. Like how does this, how does this balance in, in practice where at some point you could get pulled in on so many other people's client meetings that you start running out of time to do your own client meetings. Yes. Well, we're not actually, we are not actually going into other client meetings. That's the thing. We sort of do internal training. We do internal training so that everyone who is in the senior client advisor role or other members of the team are equipped with what they need to know on our little knowledge area. They're equipped with that and they then bring that to their clients. And I think the other way that we share knowledge is that we have a matrix structure. So we, like as an example, I I am on 11 different client engagements. That's pretty much a full load. You know, generally we have 10 to 15 clients that we're each on. And I'm working on each of those engagements. I'll be supported by a wealth planner and a wealth planner associate. So I'm working with like four or five different wealth planners throughout the firm and maybe another five wealth plan associates. So the client team stays the same, but each person at each level is working with different senior client advisors, different partners, different. And so what happens is when we're in a client, internal client team meeting and an issue comes up, I can say to someone, are you seeing this issue in any of your other clients? I mean, what did you do in that client situation or whatever? And so we're able to share knowledge across clients that we might not be on because someone else on the team will be on. And that really does help us spread knowledge around the firm. And so I want to I want to come back to that for a moment. 11 clients. And 11 clients supported by a wealth planner and a wealth planner associate because you know 11 clients on your own would be very busy. So help me understand what what 11 clients looks like and what kind of I guess what sort of work are you doing or what kind of meetings are 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 going on you know, when when 
you know, you look broadly at the industry, you usually see numbers of, of, you know, how many active clients per advisor in, you know, the 80 to 100 clients per advisor range, some higher, sometimes higher at, at, at some firms with high volume clients. Like, what are you doing all day and all week with, I'm not, I'm not trying to say in a negative way, but like, what are you doing with only 11 clients and two support staff? Like, what is that? What does that engagement look like? Sure. So, and I would say in our high net worth practice, it's, it's, I don't think it's exactly the, those higher numbers you talk to, but it's closer to that. So, so I'm talking more about on the family office side. So yes, what are we doing? So, so what I would say, first of all, is when I say client, first, we have to talk about what that means. So that is a client's entire family. So typically husband, wife, maybe mother or father, then maybe three or four kids, their spouses. Okay. So that's first of all, client. So we're really talking households and household here is a a pretty broad definition of household. Exactly. So that's one thing. Not always. I mean, we do have, you know, single people or um, just, you know, couples without children we have, but, but that on average is like that. Then it's also, we view our role as pulling together, being in the role of pulling together all of the external advisors so that we work as a cohesive team on behalf of the client. So now you're talking about estate planner, accountant, life insurance agent, property casualty insurance agent, maybe valuation person, you know, two or three on and on and on. Maybe, you know, person who's more on the therapy side of things. There can be a whole host of like, say, five to eight or nine other people. So like as a good example, I have a client situation where the person has moved overseas and they're buying property. I think we literally needed something like seven advisors on a phone call because you've got the U.S.-based income tax person, U.S.-based estate tax person, you've got the marital person, you've got the local jurisdiction, all those equivalent people, you've got us. And so, so this is just an example. Like that was one, you know, one and a half hour call to deal with this one situation in this one client situation of the tech. So, so maybe, so hopefully this is giving you a good, so, and then, and then you're, and then you're meeting with those clients, which now is Zoom meetings largely, but you're meeting them usually four times a year, not always, sometimes more, sometimes less. You're talking to them pretty frequently, more frequently than that. Which which means, I'm just curious, like how, how frequent is frequent? I mean, is this, uh, you could be, you know, corresponding, interacting with them weekly because, this week they're buying the house in another country and next week they've got a weird tax issue in the following week, some other things happening with one of the kids and we're down that rabbit hole at that level, just in terms of how many conversations, because even one quote client is a, is a household that could have a half a dozen people or more involved. So someone's got something going on. almost. You got it. Yes, exactly. And it's always different. I mean, that's what makes our stuff fun too. You know, we have a lot of people who say they came from the investment professional world and then they retire and they go become artists and now they want to start an art business and then they need our help doing that. Like, you know, I need to get the, I need to get the space. I need to get the insurance. I need to figure out how to do this. Like, um, oh, I want to make this a nonprofit. Like, you know, all this stuff, they call us first, uh, which is awesome. So, but you know, it means that every day is different. And you're always then seeking out the appropriate, you know, sort of CFP code. Like, what what can I do myself? What do I know myself? What do I need help with? What do I need to go bring other people in to do? And then how do I make this simple for the client? You know, like, this is not simple. How do I make it simple? Because they don't want to know about all the, you know, 
all this stuff. They just want to know what do you need for me and how, how can you make this happen? And that's basically, that's what we do. And so then take me back again to just how on earth do fees and fee structure work in, in your firm? I mean, you had said like some are flat fee and then others are, are AUM, but can you just help me understand, I guess, even just the neighborhood? I mean, are, are we talking about $20,000 flat fees, $100,000 flat fees? Like, is there a world of AUM on someone that has $82 million? What do fees really look like when you, when you get down to practice with clients at this level? Yes. And so at the high net worth level, it follows more of what would be sort of your typical fee schedule, you know, like I don't have ours in front of me, but you know, it's, it's competitive. If anything, I think it's a, a bit lower perhaps than other competitors might be, but a, a AUM fee, usual kinds of breakpoints on AUM fee. Exactly. At the family office level, typically it starts with like a fee schedule concept, but the reality is we've worked with so many people across so many different situations. We know that there are several factors that influence fee in terms of being able to provide necessary advice. So size of family, you know, complexity of situation. So that's why sort of more and more we're going to a flat fee structure because then you also have people who come and say they are people in private equity firms. They've got, you know, 70% of their balance sheet is locked up in assets that they're running themselves. It's like they don't want to pay you on those obviously, but meanwhile, it's actually a factor. Like the fact that that's happening in their life creates a lot of complexity and capital calls that need to be tracked. And so we sort of put all this into the soup and we understand the sort of range of fees that need to be charged for us to be able to do all we do at these levels of complexity. So our, just to give you a general range, and I'm probably not going to get the number exactly right, but we have a minimum fee at the family office level. And it used to be 100,000. I think now it's more like 120, 130, but that's an annual fee. So like for us to be able to do the work that we do, we're going to need to have to charge at least that on an annual basis. So you know, you'll get some people where maybe they're at a certain asset level where that's not going to make sense. You know, So then we're going to talk about whether that actually is what they should be doing right now, or maybe they'll do you know something more where we're doing more than high net worth and investing some of their liquid assets until their life gets more to the level where they can afford our full you know suite of services at the family office level. But I, I'd add one last thing, which is it's something that is I think pretty unique about our firm and about this free structure is we don't need there to be liquid money to manage to work with people. You know, often business founders don't have a lot of money that is liquid, but they have a very complex life and they have planning that needs to be done now, not when they are liquid. So often we'll start working with people, say three or four years before a major liquidity event, because if they have the cash flow to support our fee, we are happy to work with them and be able to do a lot of this great work that they need done now. And then Sometimes that transitions to a different fee structure once they have liquidity, but but yeah, so it's it allows us to do really good planning work for people who need that kind of help now. And so fees start at one hundred to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I'm presuming then that means they go up from there. So you may have clients that have one hundred and fifty thousand dollar engagements, two hundred thousand dollar engagements. Well, or I mean, even higher than that. All the way. I mean, a sort of typical fee in our industry, and this keeps changing, you know, but like I think maybe three or four years ago, a number that was floating around, which I think was quite fair and accurate, was like for a, 
wealth advising client with a hundred million, they would be paying basically 40 basis points. You know, so it's a $400,000 fee. And so it's something, you know, I'd say our fees on average are somewhere between uh, at the family office level or somewhere between the, the 130 and, and up. Well, and just if I do the math at a $20 million minimum at the, for the family office level, like a $120,000 fee is essentially 60 basis points. Right, exactly. So it's, you know, it it makes sense. I mean, it follows the breakpoint concept, you know, that the more the more assets you have, it does come down a bit. But but that's why we have a minimum fee because as you can see, I mean, the amount of work we're doing, it's just a lot. Like you can't take it down that much well, because I'm imagining someone's listening to this and like and saying like you you can, you can just hire your own person for for $120,000. But at the same time, you you're at this level, their lives are going to have so many different complexities. It's like, yeah, you could hire a person, but they're not going to have all the different expertises that you need because there's investment expertise and there's tax expertise and there's estate planning expertise and there's all the family legacy planning expertise that you're talking about. And like, A, you're not probably not going to find one person who does that, who can do it at the level that you need it when you're a DECA millionaire. And even if you do, they're, they're actually going to cost you a lot more than $120,000, which means you you probably still getting a deal at 120 relative to hiring a person for it, right? Just that whole phenomenon of wealth and needs are incredibly relative up the scale, right? Even if you've got a hundred million dollars, like, yes, you could hire several people for 400 grand, but you actually may have so much complexity that it will cost you more to hire the depth of expertise that you need than to just pay the $400,000 to the firm. Exactly. And, you know, we, we, of course, look at that issue and there is a level of wealth where you could probably get enough people to replicate what we're doing. But that's something more, I'd say, north of 700 million, 800 million, because exactly the point you're talking about, it's not just the one person you need excellent. I mean, just talk about how much you have to pay excellent investment people. I mean, there, there's that. Then there's all of these other areas that we're talking about. But then I honestly think the priceless piece is that we're seeing 250 families. And so I think that that's actually something that every single family office struggles with, that they just see that one family. And it's really hard to, through that one family, have access to all of the types of issues that come up. You feel a little bit on an island, I think. So I think that that is something that we really help clients with by bringing all of the experiences of all these different families and these shared lessons. And why we price it that way is if you were to ask people like, you know, when they first joined, do you want us to, if we like did an a la carte menu and said like, and how much would you like us to charge you to help you with these family issues with your children? I think most people on the way in would be like, I don't know. I, I know my kids are so young. I'm not sure I need that. But the reality is, you know, everyone needs it. They just might not know they need it. So our, our one fee allows us to be able to bring that up when we know it's really necessary. And then we find, of course, on the back end, like, I know our fees must sound incredibly high to someone who's not, you know, in this world on a daily basis, but we have tremendously high client retention because clients find that we are saving them, you know, year after year, way more in either money saved or family harmony or everything else that these fees start to seem, I think, totally, I don't know, if you're sort of achieving priceless changes in people's situation, our fee does not seem high. And so what was your, like, what was your journey? How do you, how do you end out in this kind of work, in this kind of role? Is, is this a, like 
always wanted to do this since I was young and, and work in ultra high net worth wealth management. How do you end out in this sort of, of role and career? Yes, I love that question. I just had this lip picture of like five-year-old coming like, I want to be a wealth advisor. Like, no, that's, that's not what I was saying. And I'm so glad to tell this story because I actually hope that, I hope, first of all, people are hearing this and think, wow, I had no idea that you could do this in the financial advising world. Because I think if I had learned that at a young age, I, th- I think I would think that was pretty cool. My background was, I always wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> I like, I think I decided junior year of high school, I was going to be a doctor. I did all my pre-meds in college. I spent one day a week, my junior year working in a hospital as something they called the surgical liaison, where you basically like, you were like the volunteer person floating around from the ICU and the OR, then telling the waiting families how their patient was doing. Because, you know, the medical field was changing and the economics were changing. They used to pay nurses to do that. Then they had retired nurses. Then like they weren't even doing that. And I was like the first college kid. And I was trained by this awesome salty nurse who was awesome. Anyway, but I learned in that process that I actually had a lot of doctors who I like had gone to since I was little tell me that they really would not recommend becoming a doctor at that time. This was the this was like the 90s. This was the mid 90s. So I had a lot of people, I literally had gone to see a dermatologist since when I was like 11. And when I was 19, she's like, okay, my partner in my practice just left to become a financial advisor. (laughs) I was like, what? And basically what they were saying was the economics are changing in this, in this field. And what it means is that it's really hard to serve patients in the way you want to. And sort of like the joy has gone out of the work. And I got really sort of frightened by that because the economics didn't scare me so much. I mean, I was never going into make a lot of money. What really worried me is that I would feel like I would be on the clock with patients and that I wouldn't be able to help them in the way that I wanted to, because I'm a real kind of helper person. So that was confusing because now I'm like senior year in college and my mom was clear that like, okay, you know, done, done paying for college, you need a job. <laughs> and so I, I needed a job, you know? And so, I mean, and I was like trained for nothing because I had done my pre-meds and I had taken not one economics class and Goldman Sachs came on campus and they hired me into a sales job, which I didn't even like sales. <laughs> <laughs> laughing about all this now. But I guess they thought I would, you know, enjoy talking to people, which is true. I do like talking to people. But anyway, lucky me, they decided to shut that group down three months later. Actually, they moved it to Chicago, but I was in New York and I had family in New York. And I, I kind of went to them pleading and said, I really don't want to move to Chicago. Is there some other place you can stick me in my two-year analyst, you know, deal? And I got so lucky because they then put me into what was Goldman Sachs's first foray into open architecture. So it was just a really fascinating, it was a fascinating exposure to the investment industry. And here I was like me with no experience. And the job was traveling around the world, like around the country and around the world, interviewing money managers (laughs) to decide whether they were good enough to be hired for the portfolio for Goldman clients. Let's just say as a way to see the investment world, it was awesome. And I was traveling around the world meeting amazing investment managers. (laughs) But what happened is I as I said, I'm a helper person. And around, I think, year three or beginning of year four, a woman who I knew from a different group went on a family vacation. She was in her 30s. She was single. She went on a vacation with her parents and they got into a car accident and she died. And I remember it was such a critical moment for me because, you know, they were nice. They had a funeral, but then it was like, you know, two days later, everyone's back at work. And 
I just remember thinking, like, if this happened to me, would I have been true to my purpose in life of helping people? Like, and I really couldn't say yes to that question. I could like maybe say yes, but I thought, well, I'm hiring managers to be in pension plans and maybe like I'm helping, but it was like seven steps. And so the short answer was no. And I decided I really need to do something else. So then I kind of went searching and seeking. And in that process, I discovered I had been working on my CFA. I discovered the world of fee-only advising. I literally did not know it existed (laughs) because, you know, my friends at Goldman who were in private client, that that was basically a sales job. And and I did not know that something existed where you were just doing fee-only advising. And when I learned about it, I was like, oh my gosh, that is medicine. It actually struck me as so similar to medicine. You have this technical expertise, you bring it to this hopefully like very long-lived human relationship with a person. It's all about helping them achieve their goals in life. And I just like, that's it. That's like me being a doctor. (laughs) So that's kind of how that. And then once I decided that I started looking around for a firm that I thought would be not only practicing with like, you know, excellent integrity um, and ethics, but would be practicing with the types and sort of size of clients that I had seen at Goldman, even though I wasn't working with them directly. And that's how I came across Valentine. And that was, oh, 17 years ago, I think, 16 years ago, a long time ago. Very cool. Very cool. And, uh, and, and just, and been there ever since, like, what did, what did you come in? What did you come into the firm originally to do? Yes, I came in originally as what we termed at the time, a senior client advisor in training, which is basically an apprentice role. I spent the first three years following Roy around, essentially. So like I was on clients, I I came in, Roy had some clients that he had just begun working with. I was put onto those clients as like, this is going to be your person once she knows something other than (laughs) investments, you know, which is is what I came in knowing, but I knew nothing about estate planning and like all these other things. And like, so it was Roy and me, you know, out, and by the way, when I say Roy did this for probably like 10 of us at our firm, which is how our whole group of next generation leaders got created. And then we all did that for another 10, 15, 20 people, which is how, you know, now we have almost 100 people. So, I mean, you know, I really credit Roy for the apprenticing that he did for master apprentice that he did for so many of us. But essentially, I just sort of watched him while I was running like a little duck, you know, trying to finish my CFA, get my CFP, learn about all these things I didn't know about, try to say things in the meetings that would imbue some competence, even though I was clearly still learning. And so I spent maybe two two years as the in training, then I became a senior client advisor with my own, you know, 15 or 10, 15 clients. Those were those those families still are the families that I serve. Now I'm sort of more what we call partner in charge on those engagements, which is that I come to the meetings or, you know, every other meeting, but there is a now a senior client advisor doing what I was doing. And then in 2011, we did a whole succession process at our firm where we made Drew be CEO and I became chief wealth advisor officer, meaning I was managing our whole planning group. And I did that for four years, five years. And we had about 25 people in the group then. And then I started doing these books. And that started sort of taking me in a whole different direction where I eventually gave up much of my management role. And now my wonderful co-partner, Adam Oakless, is doing that. And I'm spending the bulk of my time writing a third book, speaking on these books, still being involved with the clients that I was involved in. And I'm sort of like our chief marketing officer. We don't call it that, but I sort of managed that 
piece of our work. And I have another wonderful woman, Carly O'Gary, who does all of that. She's our marketing manager and works for me. So yeah. And there's one other thing now we're doing a whole financial literacy sort of from the books and from, I mentioned my, my colleague Akiva, when we were talking earlier, she has this whole sort of side thing where she does financial literacy training to help close the racial wealth gap. She has 8,000 YouTube subscribers and she's awesome. We just created a role for her of creating a financial literacy curriculum for our clients and their children. And so she's reporting to me and that's sort of like thought leadership capacity and family education capacity. So that's what I'm doing now. So it's, it has evolved. So, so having done this journey, what do most advisors not understand about what it, what it really takes for serving ultra high net worth clients? I think one thing that people struggle with is that they look at these people and they're so successful and, you know, and they think, wow, they have so much money. And I think that can sometimes create a barrier. And I've just always seen my clients as people first. And in fact, many of them are people who never, ever imagined they'd have this amount of money and never imagined that it would come with problems. <laughs> you know, I think that I think most people think, yay, you know, when I am rich, all these things will go away. The reality is it comes with some problems that are actually really hard to talk about. And so I view my role as helping my clients have that person and that place where they can talk about those things and and help them feel like the humans they are, you know, and help them engage on these issues that I think the other thing that can be a little sad when you have so much wealth is that I think people expect life to be like, shouldn't life be amazing now? Like you have all the resources to make it amazing. So if it's not amazing, why is that? And generally the answer to that question is it's usually about the most intractable problems, you know, broken down relationships with children or, you know, life's dreams deferred or, you know, these things that are really hard. And so I help, I view is to sometimes help clients get unstuck. Like think just because we have these homes or have these assets doesn't mean that has to be the life we are leading. Like it's almost like helping people perceive the freedom that they have. But I think it's sometimes hard to perceive yourself as truly having choices. And so there's, there's sort of normal managing of uh, human investor psychology that plays a role in this work too. So what was the, what was the low point of the career journey for you? I think when I first started working with clients, I am I'm a helper person. I'm an optimist. I think I just thought I can solve every problem. <laughs> like, like if there's a problem with a kid, like I will just teach them how to budget. I will like bring in my little, you know, black, black bag doctor full of tricks, you know, budgeting one-on-one, whatever, and the problem will be solved. And I think what I learned, I mean, that, that probably sounds incredibly naive, but I, I do think now upon reflection that that is how I thought about things. And I think I learned just working in reality and working in this field that by the time I'm called in to help a situation with a 25-year-old, you know, who's having trouble with staying in a career or living off of a trust distribution that's supposed to last for three months and they're spending it in a week. And they, that, uh, I can do some good work there. Like, yes, I can definitely improve the situation, but I think I learned that I wish I had been able to get involved with those families so much earlier to basically really help help guide the parenting choices along the way. And I think as part of that, I also learned that sometimes 
what needs to change is parents' behavior itself, like the ways in which how they are behaving are actually enabling the child. And sometimes it's just really hard to hear that. Like, I think that sometimes people just can't hear that. Uh, so I think I learned through these situations that were difficult. I think part, partly, partially that is what pushed me on to seek out the stories about what can go well and try to spread those messages through the book. I really was like, if I can reach through the book families who still have young kids who can do these things right, that would be a wonderful thing. Like it would just give me such a sense of satisfaction to be able to to spread those messages out there. So what advice would you give newer advisors coming into the industry today? A good question. I think I'd say, it sounds so cliche, but like dare to be different. I mean, I think that I so applaud our firm for letting me write these books. I mean, I took like serious time out of, you know, <laughs> commission. Like I could have been on more clients. I could have been doing a lot of other things, but they let me have the time to write these books because it was important to the firm that we get to the right answers on these issues with our clients. And I think that was like a real risk that the firm took that I think has been really beneficial for our clients and has been helpful for people to better understand what our firm is about. I think that I would encourage young people coming in to be that, you know, beat that drum at whatever firm they are in and try to whatever thing they think will move the needle to try to get the firm to embrace that. So, so as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, you've had this wonderful career journey of success and building your career at the firm and becoming a partner and writing the book. And, you know, but I, you know, particularly because I know you spend so much time on this conversation with the clients that you serve. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, you know, I think it's the same as for the clients, you know, like when I was writing the book on aging, I talked about George Kinder's question about if you're told you have one, like this is your last day on earth, what is that immediate feeling of regret that comes to mind about who you didn't get to be and what did you not get to do? And I think success is not having that sense of regret. It's doing the things in your life that will mean that if you get to that point in your life, you're not going to feel that sense of regret. So like, and I, that's why I always keep asking that question of my clients to keep getting them to focus on, I think especially highly successful people can be in this sort of constant state of forward momentum where success is defined as the industry by, you know, the zeros on the balance sheet and the houses accrued and all of the wealth accumulation and scorecard keeping. But what I actually find is that that is not what people perceive in reality as feeling like success later in life. They, It's different for everybody, but I really think that question gets to it. What is that thing that you would regret not having done or become? And so for my own life, when I wrote book two, I started to carve out some more time in my life to do my art because for me, that was the answer to that question. And I was like, I don't want to feel that way. <laughs> I don't want to feel like this thing is burning inside me that has not had a chance to get out. And so I, that's, I think, success. It's, it's listening to that voice and doing that thing. And I think our role as an advisor is helping clients frame that question and helping them feel 
like the rest of their financial situation is being handled so they have the freedom to work on whatever that thing is that will help them answer that question. I love that. I, I love that. And even the, the framing of part of our value and role of advisors is to help deal with and worry about some of that money and other stuff to free their their space and mind and, and time and focus to have the freedom to pursue whatever that thing is that eliminates the end of life regret. Yeah. Well, I think this is where I come back to like, we're all humans. Like, I think the goal is the same. Like my clients have like hundreds of millions more than me, but I think it's the same goal that we don't want to have to feel regret at that question. And so just trying to help them ask that. I once had a client say to me, you know, after I left my work life, people didn't ask me challenging questions anymore. So I actually feel like that's like a really important role that we bring to our clients is asking those, I think Jay Hughes called it courageous questions, like, but being the one to say, how's that going to feel if you don't do that thing? Or how's that going to feel if you do do that? You know, and get people to really think hard about that versus just going through the motions. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Covey, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.